the Political Prisoner Podcast, produced by Look Ahead America. I'm your co-host, Matt Brainerd, Executive Director of Look Ahead America, here with the Director of Government Affairs, Kimmy Gonzalez. How are you doing, Kimmy? Great. This is exciting, Matt. Yes, this is the first foray we have into this uh, medium, and I expect us to have many more. Uh, But unfortunately, it's a very somber topic. The Political Prisoner series is going to consist of interviews with many of the political prisoners uh, that have been persecuted as a result of their nonviolent actions in the aftermath of the January 6th Capitol protest. And we have a very exceptional guest today here. Um, I'm going to, Kimmy's going to introduce him, but I, I did not meet him until we did our Justice for J6 rally in Columbia, South Carolina. He's a fellow uh, South Carolinian like myself. And I saw him speak, and I was really moved by the circumstances of of his case. And, uh, you know, he's doing two things that many of the folks who have not uh, – well, we'll get to that later in the podcast. But two things that make him exceptional is, first, that he's talking to us and talking to the media and giving speeches, because in many cases, those with pending trials have been told to shut up by their attorneys. And the other thing that makes him kind of exceptional is that while he's been offered a plea deal, by the Department of Justice, he's not taking it. So, uh, an exceptional individual. Kimmy, what, what can you tell us about him? Well, Stephen definitely has a powerful story, um, a native of North Carolina and an independent journalist, which definitely will factor into the story that he's going to share with us from that viewpoint of being a journalist that was there at the Capitol. Um, I think we're all looking forward to hearing what he has to say and sharing of his experience. Um, And and especially I'm interested in hearing, knowing that he was turned in um, by people that had known him his entire entire life. So we look forward to having Stephen here and I thank him for his time today. Stephen Horn. Thank you. Stephen Horn. Stephen Horn. Stephen with a PH. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, Stephen, welcome to our podcast. You are our premier initial first ever guest. Well, thank you for having me. So, why did you go to the Capitol on January 6th? Uh, you, you want to know why I was in Washington, D.C., or why I was uh, heading over to the Capitol specifically? Well, how about both? What brought you to D.C., and why did you decide to go over the Capitol building? Okay. So, Heading to Washington, D.C. So I guess, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not very old. I haven't seen that many political, you know, campaigns for president that I really paid attention to. But I could still tell that Donald Trump was, was unique as a politician, just in the, in the energy of the people that he inspired. So I had been intending to visit a Trump rally in person for some time, you know, in 2020, but I was pretty busy. I kept putting it off. And before I knew it, it was after the election, you know, it was, it was looking like he definitely was not going to become the president in 2021. And so I, I heard, I had been following some of the news about the previous Stop the Steal rallies in DC, I believe it was November and December. 
So when I heard about the January 6th rally, I heard that, you know, Donald Trump himself was, was sharing it, promoting it. Um, I was like, well, this is, this is probably my last offer, or maybe not probably, but it's likely my last opportunity to attend uh, a Trump rally in person, just, uh, you know, experience it for myself. So I'm, I'm not a Trump supporter. I didn't vote for him in 2016. I didn't vote for him in 2020, but I still wanted to, wanted to see what his, his rally was like for myself. So that, that's what brought me to Washington, D.C. that day. Wait a, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not a Trump, who did you vote for? Uh, 2016, I don't, I don't remember whether I voted for anyone for president. I might've written, written someone in uh 2020 you know i i did vote but uh, i believe i wrote in ron paul because uh he's <laughs> pretty right. much the best best uh politician of my lifetime okay so i uh, see i was told that this was all of these people were basically a bunch of donald trump insurrectionists and you you don't really fit that description so, okay, you, you decided to go to D.C., you were curious, or did you consider yourself to be a, a journalist at this point? And what, what do you think would, I mean, how would you prove, hey, what, what do you mean you're a journalist when you went to this rally? Was it at the beginning of your journalism career, or, or um, tell us a little bit about, about that. Yeah, so I, I started, I had been involved with some sort of documentary projects and stuff previously, but I really started you know, doing stuff as an independent journalist last summer. Uh, I sort of seen in Raleigh, uh, near where I live, there is a, a large riot after, you know, the death of George Floyd um, and sort of that those continuing protests bordering on to civil unrest and riots. Um, I sort of didn't believe that the local media, the local mainstream media was covering them fairly and accurately. So, so that was, that was sort of more of my first foray into independent journalism was, was, uh, you know, documenting some riots that were occurring. Uh, you, you went to the rally, you went over the Capitol building, uh, people started going in. Um, just to clarify, did, did you assault any police officers that day? Did you put a finger on them? No, no, I actually uh, sort of uh, protected some police officers from being assaulted. How'd you do that? Uh, we can get into that. No, no, tell me. How'd you yeah. do that? Yeah, so this is this is uh, in the basement of the rotunda. I believe it was called the crypt. You know, things that was that that was probably the the most intense part that I was there for. And so, yeah, yeah. So there are some people sort of standing between the police officers and the more, you know, violent or agitated members of the crowd. And so there, there's this one guy who he had a, he had a flag in his hand, you know, it had an American flag. It had one of those, uh, one of those eagles on the end. So I, he was sort of making his way toward, toward the officers and, just, just from the look in his eye, I could tell that uh, nothing, nothing good was going to happen. So I just sort of grabbed the end of his flagpole. Uh, did you, um, do you know who that individual was, and do you know if they were arrested? Yeah, he was actually just recently uh, arrested. Um, 
His name was Haya. Um, so he was, he was, uh, he ended up being arrested for assault, but he did not assault any police officers, you know, in the, in the crypt, you know, after I had this encounter with him, but I believe the assault he's being charged with was, uh, sort of, um, I think near where Ashley Babbitt was shot, sort of in that encounter, I think. I think that is the assault he's being charged with and an okay. incident with the officers over there. Okay, so um so you didn't assault any police officers, you defended them. You didn't did you break anything to get into the building? Did you break your window, break a door, kick a door down? No, like no I did not break anything. So at any point when you walked into all this, did you did anybody advise you, a police officer say, Hey, you're not allowed to go in there or anything like that? Any anyone say, Hey, you shouldn't be here? Did you receive that message from anyone? No, no. I mean, I guess I was sort of surprised. You know, looking back, I'm surprised that that the police did not utilize more auditory communication. You know, I've I've been at sort of covering protests in Raleigh where people are just marching down the street and the police are following them in a van with a PA system saying, you're in violation of whatever ordinance, you know, get out of the street. You know, just following around, following them around, blasting that over their PA system. So, you know, looking back, I'm surprised they weren't out there on their PA system, at least saying, hey, you know, basically you're, you're all violating the law. You know, if they're saying everyone inside the restricted area was violating this, this law, committing this misdemeanor, I'm, I'm sort of surprised they weren't out there on their PA system telling people to leave. Uh, so, I mean, why did you go in the building to begin with? Yeah, I mean, I guess as as I was approaching the Capitol, um, I guess before before I had even reached the the Capitol grounds, you know, going down what is it, maybe Pennsylvania Avenue? I don't remember which road it is, but you know, before before I got to the Peace Monument or or anything like that. I, I noticed sort of a, a shift in the crowd's demeanor because I had, I had been there since like six or seven in the morning. So over over by the ellipse, you know, the crowd there was, you know, basically just what I would expect for a rally. But as I got closer to the Capitol, um, I started seeing more of the the energy or the demeanor of the crowd that was closer to to what I had seen, you know, at a riot in Raleigh where people had, you know, committed vandalism and assaulted some journalists. So that, so even before I had got to the Capitol, that's when I took my camera out and started filming. So before I had even reached Capitol grounds, I was like, okay, I'm putting my camera on. I'm fully in journalist mode now. So by the time I entered the building, I was just like, hey, there's clearly stuff going on here that is newsworthy, that's significant. You know, I'm, I'm taking video of it. So you have footage of basically, I mean, how many hours of footage do you have from that day? Yeah, I have two hours of footage. I, you know, started the camera at the beginning, you know, stopped it two hours later as I was leaving to so just you know, two hours of continuous footage. It's funny what's happening to you because I actually know the name of somebody who was on the Capitol 
I know this person at the Capitol on January 6th, walked all through the place, just wandered all over, um, and isn't technically a journalist, but works for a, a, a journalism outfit, let's say that. And no one's even, I mean, he's, he, and you probably know this as well as anybody, is that about as many protesters were in that building were as many journalists. And none of them have had the FBI come after them whatsoever, or the Department of Justice. All of those journalists that were there, not all of them have credentials to go into the Capitol building. I mean, some do, but most of them don't. But the, they've basically just taken hands off. But for some reason, I guess, and, and I understand that maybe there's, um, uh, let's say that some people might try to be claiming that they're an independent journalist or somebody documenting things to uh, maybe get the same treatment. I mean, it doesn't seem to be the same case with you. But uh, what do you think about that, that, that uh, different treatment? I mean, they were there illegally, too, but they're journalists, so they get, they're getting off with it. So what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess my, my lawyer has suggested that uh, I be careful in what I say about the Department of Justice as to not offend them. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I will just comment that in terms of, of expecting anyone covering a riot at the Capitol to have press credentials for you know, covering the ordinary operations of Congress. You know, I, I remember seeing an article probably a few months back that was basically on, it was about some of these, these journalists that, you know, every day they go to Congress and they're covering what's happening there. And during the riot, you know, it, it, I believe one of, one of the journalists profiled in the article, he did go and he did, you know, film some of what was going on with the people coming into the building. But most of them that it was, it was, you know, talking about in the article, you know, they went, they sort of hid and they, I believe one of them even covered the sign for the press room. He covered it with his jacket so that, you know, because they're afraid. They're afraid that if people, you know, they would come after them for being press, which, you know, certain, certain journalists were assaulted. Sure. But I think it's, it's a bit unreasonable to expect the the people who are normally going to Congress every day to cover, you know, legislators and the lawmaking process to expect those same people to be the only ones to cover a riot. Right. So just to just to advance the narrative here, you went to the rally to see what it was all about. Not a Trump supporter, not a particularly partisan person, never voted for him. Just wanted to, to document it as an independent journalist. Fair enough. You went into the building because you were you're going with the crowd. It just there was no it didn't seem clear to you at all that you should not be in there, right? You just the doors were open and you walked in. Is that is that the case? Yeah, I mean pretty early on when I was you know, I was I was following the crowd. I had already pulled out my camera because I could sort of tell that stuff was going down even before I got to the Capitol. And you know, I did see uh <laughs> a trampled down fence. And the fence did have signs on it saying, I don't remember exactly what the wording was. But that when I got there, that fence was already trampled down. And I could see thousands of people on Capitol grounds. So when I'm going in there, I'm, I'm not breaking into anywhere. I'm going in there because people are already in there. And this is obviously, this is obviously newsworthy. This, you know, right. obviously this is something, hey, you know, the public is is interested in knowing what is going on here. 
So, uh, okay. So that day, I guess you, you did, you know, we're around the Capitol, you got some footage, you left, you left January 6th and you went back to, forgive me, I said initially you're South Carolina, but you're North Carolina, but you showed up at the South Carolina rally, which is great. But, uh, you, you left January 6th and you went back to North Carolina. Is that the story? Yeah. Yeah. So I had, I had, uh, rode up on a bus that morning, you know, I had stayed up till like, you know, 1am, got in the bus, drove up to DC. And so, you know, the bus was leaving DC around, I want to say around 5, 5.30 maybe. So yeah, I, I got on that bus, you know, on the bus ride back, I plugged my camera in, started, you know, loading, processing the footage, even as I was, yeah, on my way back home to North Carolina. Okay. Um, so tell us about the arrest. Yeah, so I guess it was it was the next day or the day after, you know, January seventh or eighth that I actually I actually uh, sent in a tip to the FBI, just saying, hey, you know, I was they had already put out that you know they were looking for the people responsible and stuff, so I just you know sent them a tip saying, hey, I have some footage. I saw some assault taking place. I saw some vandalism, etc. So you know I had contacted them. You know, on the, the form, there's, you know, you put in your phone number, you put in your email address. So I was sort of expecting them to contact me at some point, but I was, I was expecting them to maybe give me a call or send me an email. But they, uh, yeah, they, they showed up at my house, you know, two FBI agents. Uh, I wasn't home, so they, they came to uh, where I work. Um, can, can you say what kind of regular job do you have? What, what's your, I, I'd rather not say, is it, uh, but it's like, uh, it's not a journalism job. It's sort of a, something you do yeah, to support no, your independent no. journalism. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, my, my full-time job, you know, I work that it's, it's not related to journalism. Okay. And so they come and they, and you, you actually gave, you wanted to help prosecute people who had assaulted police officers, done, you know, damage to property, et cetera. So you reached out to them actively to try to help them. And as a result, uh, you're now facing four charges. What are those charges, by the way? Um, yeah, so it's, it's the same four charges that uh, quite a few of the defendants are facing. Uh, so it's, entering and remaining in a restricted building, disorderly and disruptive conduct in a restricted building, violent entry and disorderly conduct in a Capitol building, and then parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building. So those are the, the four charges. Now, they offered you a plea agreement, didn't they? What was that plea agreement? Yeah, so, so basically they were, they wanted me to plead guilty to uh, one of one of the lesser misdemeanors. Um, I believe it was parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building. So yeah, yeah. So they they offered this this plea agreement. Um, they even sent over a draft of the plea agreement if I wanted to sign. Um, but yeah, they, they basically, 
wanted me to admit that I was there, you know, parading, demonstrating, or picketing. And uh, they said, hey, we'll, we'll ask the judge to only give you probation. You know, they can't they can't guarantee a certain sentence, but they 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 told my lawyer that they would ask for that. Well, wait a minute. So we've but we've seen cases now where the DOJ um, makes that agreement with you or that they'll ask for it. But then the judge doesn't think that's enough punishment and then imposes something much more substantial. Have, have you heard of that happening? Yeah, <laughs> I have heard of uh I don't recall if it was a misdemeanor plea deal or a felony plea deal where the judge in one of these January 6 cases where the judge did, you know, sentence sentence uh, the defendant to more time than even the prosecution was asking for. So, why don't you just take the deal, man, and get on with your life? Well, I mean, I I can't I can't sign a document saying that I was parading, demonstrating, or picketing in the Capitol building because I was not parading, demonstrating, or picketing in the Capitol building. So I I I can't sign something that isn't true. Now, well, uh, so I had to, I know the I had to ask that question for the benefit of our audience because when you explain this in your speech at Columbia, which is probably the best speech of the day. Um, it really struck me. So what, what's happening here is the Department of Justice, they know what you were doing there because you have video footage. You reached out to them. You told them the whole story. They want you to admit to something that you know isn't true and that they know isn't true. To It, it seems to me to solidify this narrative of there being an insurrection, a violent, in fact, insurrection, because uh, they know all that. And I mean, how how does that... How does it make you, how do you think about that when, when you consider that that's, that's what your government is trying to do to you? What, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, I can, I can say that, uh, that, you know, the charges, the charges against me, you know, I, I look forward to defending myself against them. Um, but yeah, yeah. As I as I mentioned before, my lawyer has advi- has advised me against saying anything uh, too too negative about uh, the Department of Justice and the federal government. Which I will say that that really shouldn't be a factor in any of their decisions. If they're prosecuting someone who is vocal about how they don't like the Department of Justice, or someone who is very pro Department of Justice, that really should not factor into any of their decision making that really shouldn't factor into you know anything but you know my lawyer at least feels that hey it could negatively impact my case if i am criticizing the department of justice you know that that is remarkable to me and uh, you know i that sounds like good advice from your lawyer but it's, it's disheartening that he has to give it to you it's it's very disappointing to hear that but i it's probably the right advice. Sadly, we know. Um, well, I'm not going to say anything critical on this podcast to get you any trouble, but I've said enough on that front. Um, I actually want to turn it over to Kimmy. I think Kimmy's got some good questions for you. Yes, um, Stephen, speaking about your lawyer, um, is he okay with you talking with us today? Yeah, I mean, we had we had discussed it. I think in my case. You know, I, I published all the video I took, the two hours. 
I published that, you know, the next day. So all my all my conduct is is on the table already. You know, I think most most lawyers are concerned that their that the, their client will, you know, maybe reveal some information that is damaging to them. But you know, I talked to my attorney and I'm I'm not really worried about that. You know, I, I think I've been pretty open the whole time about you know what I did and what I said and why I was there. And is there anything in the press? Is there something that the media um, got wrong that you want to set straight? Yeah, I mean, I guess when when I was first arrested, there was some media coverage, and I was I was disappointed with the media coverage because all of the articles, but one that I can recall, were pretty much just a restatement of the FBI's, you know, criminal document that they're filing against me. So, you know, they're just, they read, they read the document, they just basically rewrite the document. But since, since they're, they're just rewriting a document from the FBI, they sort of uh, got, got something wrong, which is that, in the document, the FBI never mentions that I had sent in a tip to them before anyone had identified me in a picture. So they're saying, you know, on January 11th, there is this picture, picture of, you know, Horn in, that was posted on the New York Times Instagram page. I believe it was the New York Times. So right. I, I might have yes. the outlet wrong. Yeah. And so they say, okay, well, we, we heard from this one witness who said, yeah, that's Stephen Horn, and he was there as a journalist. And we heard from this other witness saying, yeah, that's Stephen Horn. You know, nowhere in there did they mention that Stephen Horn had sent them a tip the next day or the day after, you know, saying, hey, I have this video. So in the news outlets, so the FBI, they're pretty careful in their wording. I don't think they're technically being deceitful when they say, Horn was identified to us on January 11th because they're not saying that they weren't aware of me before that. They're just saying, hey, these, we talked to these people. They said, you know, this is, this is our guy. But when the news outlets report it, some of them reported it more of, oh, this is when the FBI first found out about this, which is not true, and which the FBI, you could say they're being sort of misleading by leaving it out. But you know, there, they didn't explicitly say that. So I was, I was disappointed in that. And that, you know, my, my lawyer had warned me like, hey, you know, we might get some contact from media outlets, you know, wanting a statement. But actually, none of none of the outlets, you know, writing articles did contact me or my lawyer for a statement before publishing these articles or just you know, a, a regurgitation of FBI's document. So, so I, I hope that your lawyer, I understand he said no bad mouthing of um, DOJ, FBI, federal government and this, but man, can we not trash talk some of these journalists? Are they not truly the enemies of people? Because their behavior in this and their treatment of your story and the way they have been, and, and you know, part of the problem with the media isn't necessarily just how they cover stuff, but what they choose to cover. Like your story is got to be about the most, probably one of the most sympathetic cases of wrongful prosecution by the federal government. And they have completely 
like Barry, it, it just lumps you in with, you know, the folks out there trying to stab a cop with a, an American flag. Uh, it, has this made you reconsider wanting to be a journalist or has it made you uh, more dedicated to that vocation? Yeah, yeah, I think you're uh, breaking up a little there on my end, but basically the reason I started doing independent journalism was because I was looking at what was happening and looking at how the media was covering it and saying, hey, these two don't quite line up. So seeing them continue in that pattern of behavior hasn't really discouraged me from being a journalist. If anything, it's encouraged me that like, hey, this actually isn't that hard. You don't actually have to put that much effort if you don't want to. If you're a member of that, the mainstream press, you can just sort of half-heartedly do it, tell half the story, as long as it's the right half. Did, uh, in the aftermath of your arrest, um, what kind of personal costs have you faced as a result of this through maybe your job or your family or friends? Is, have you had to pay a price for, uh, for that activity and for you know, doing what you thought was the right thing at the time? Yeah, in terms... <laughs> In terms of the price, I would say that uh, the most costly part of it is paying for an attorney. Um, How much is that, by the way? How much is your attorney costing you? Uh, I, mean, I, I don't necessarily want to get into the specifics, but uh, definitely a five-figure sum. Okay. So that, that's... Uh, that's including his, uh, his estimate of about how many hours he'll have to put in for the case. So I, I have an attorney in North Carolina, you know, when the FBI came to talk to me, I obviously said, I'm not answering any questions without an attorney present because I will recommend that for anyone. You know, in America, you have right to counsel when you're being questioned by law enforcement. Uh, I would recommend that everyone exercise that right. You know, I was, I was just reading a, a transcript of an interview with another January 6th defendant, and the police officers are saying they're interviewing someone that person hasn't asked for an attorney, and what the police officers is, are saying is, hey, you know, we're, we're your advocate here. Just, you know, tell us what happened. You know, if you're open with us, we'll, we'll try to get the prosecutor to, you know, maybe you know, be, be a little gentler on you. No, the police are never your advocate when they're questioning you. They are questioning you. Your lawyer is your advocate, and that's why you should always insist on having your lawyer present when law enforcement are questioning you. I, I hear the Ron Paul supporter coming through right now. <laughs> so um, has have anybody else, um, have any political leaders or uh, thought leaders, influencers, et cetera, um, reached out to you to try to put the spotlight on your cause or offer to help you? Uh, not that I can think of. you got to be kidding me. Um, that's really sad and disappointing because you are somebody's constituent. You are a member of Congress's constituent. You are two senators' constituent. And uh, I, I just can't tell you how disappointed it is to hear that um, – that, that they don't want to touch this. So none of them have reached out. That's very disappointing. And, you know, I'm glad that we're able to, to at least give you a platform to help you get your story out and hopefully build some, um, 
some greater, uh, I guess, support for your cause and maybe help you out in other ways. Um, if somebody wants to contribute to your legal fund or anything like that, uh, where would they go? Yeah, I mean, I, I am not currently raising money for legal defense. Um, I'm blessed to have a, a day job that, that pays for my journalistic activities, including the legal expense for uh, the government coming after me. So that's uh, that's quite something. That's really exceptional. That, but it's, it, let's say somebody wants to follow your independent journalism. How would they? What would be the best way to do that? Or somebody? Let's say there's somebody listening to this podcast who works for a journalist outfit and says, "Hey, that sounds like the kind of guy we want to give a chance to." Um, how how would somebody get a hold of you? Yeah. So if you go to stephenehorn.com, that is Stephen with a ph, stephenehorn.com. There are some links to to my channels where I post videos on Odyssey, Rumble, BitChute, YouTube. Uh, I have an email address there. You can contact me uh, or you can find me on Twitter. Uh, if you send me a DM there, I'll probably see it. So yeah, stephenehorn.com. Is there anything that um, you want to share with our audience? Uh, that we maybe haven't covered any any key parts of the story. You think that we maybe uh, left out? <laughs> yeah, there's there's just so much much of the story from that day. I will I will mention something just because I don't believe it has been sufficiently covered in mainstream media. And so so as I'm coming up to the Capitol you know, the physical Capitol building, I see someone being carried off on a stretcher. Now, it wasn't, it was an improvised stretcher, a piece of bicycle rack fencing. So they carry him off, and it's just, I want to say it's seconds later that the police line holding the stairs on on that sort of the western stair or the northern stairs on the western side of the capitol if that makes sense there are sort of two sets of staircases that the tunnel the famous tunnel is in between so that northern staircase the police there's a police line about halfway up the staircase you know holding holding people back from from coming up so i see this guy being carried away on the stretcher i see projectiles being thrown at those police officers are holding that staircase and just shortly after that they retreat and so people followed them up that's when the first breach into the capital is people that police line once they once they uh once they lose the staircase that they're they aren't able to hold people back so later i found out some more information about that man who was carried away on the stretcher and i've i've examined video you know four different angles of videos so he, he, fought, he had fallen from the side of the staircase from where these officers were. Now, I've, I've seen these four angles of video, and it sure looks to me like a police officer pushed him off of the staircase. And I believe that uh, that, that very well contributed to why the Capitol was breached, why that line of police officers was pushed back, why people were throwing stuff at those police officers, because they had just seen someone be pushed off of the staircase by police officers. He fell maybe 20 to 30 feet. I saw him get hauled off on a stretcher 
you know, someone, someone there was saying he had broken both his legs. I'm not sure if that's true. I, I actually haven't been able to identify the man for sure yet. So I'm, you know, I, I've heard that's some people That's so strange say, though, that you, we, we don't know who that guy is. How is that possible? Yeah, I think it's because uh, the, <laughs> the journalists who have access to more resources and more contacts with police, firefighters, because I believe there are actually some, some firefighters or EMTs, you know, from DC who are helping him carry him up. So the people who have those contacts aren't interested in trying to find out who this is and what, what happened to him. You know, I've heard he was carried away in critical condition, taken to a hospital, but we don't really know much more for sure beyond that. Well, I uh, I applaud your diligence in trying to get to the bottom of that. Um, uh, Kimmy, you've got another question for our guest. Yes, Stephen. Um, what has your the reaction been from your family, from your loved ones? How how are they dealing with all of this? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think. I'm not sure all of all of my family members sort of agree with with what I did. Maybe some of them think it was a bad idea that I should have stayed far away from the Capitol building. But I think all of them understand that my intent of being there was as a journalist and not, you know, as a rioter or even as a protester. Right. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Do they disagree with your decision to fight the case rather than just taking the plea? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe some of them, but uh, I'm I'm a bit opinionated. Do Do you have any second thoughts about the next time you're involved with something and you've got camera rolling? Do you have any more second thoughts about reaching out to the police uh, to try to help, as you did in this case? Um. I mean, my, my view on that might have shifted some, uh, not necessarily based on, on what happened to me because, you know, they're, they are claiming that they, I was identified to them and, you know, a picture posted online. So I'm, I'm not sure that would have influenced what happened in my own case. Um, but yeah, I, I think I would say that perhaps my view of law enforcement has changed somewhat since since the riot on January 6th, just in terms of, of how I think of them. Because, I mean, I, I guess now that you've seen the way some of these people are treated, potentially based on your video, maybe you, I mean, if, I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is that if, if your video is being, how would you feel about your video being used to identify individuals who didn't do anything violent, who are now being treated as domestic terrorists? And prosecuted as such. Yeah, so I'll, I'll sort of make the argument for journalism. Even though I am sympathetic to, to many of those, these people who are, it does appear they're being prosecuted more harshly than, than other individuals who seem to have done similar things. I'll, I'll make the argument that if you're doing something in public, you know, you, you don't have a right to privacy. So 
you know, when, when I'm filming something in public, when I'm posting it online, um, yeah, it's like this, this is a significant event. So if I post something online and someone, someone uses it to do something bad, whether it's, you know, doxing, going after someone personally, I, I don't, I don't feel that I have the responsibility to, to conceal anything that, that was happening, you know, in public at a government building. So even, even if that the FBI does use some of my footage to, you know, engage in acts that I would consider to be immoral, I, I sort of see the role of a journalist to to ex expose what's going on, even though, you know, sometimes people will use that information for, for negative purposes. Okay, well, look, um, Kimmy, and if you don't have any other questions for our guest here, I think I'm going to wrap it up. No, thank you, Stephen. Yeah, we really appreciate you doing this. Um, uh, and I understand that uh, you're in, you, you know, I, I admire your courage of, look, I didn't parade. I didn't pick it. I'm not going to admit to doing that because it's false and come what may. And uh, I think that I think your courage, I, I hope it's catching um, because I think a lot of people are also facing the same circumstances. You are having to make those hard decisions about what they want to um, what kind of arrangement they want to make with the, the federal government. So and I'm also glad that Look Ahead America was able to provide this platform to you. Um, I would say to our listeners, look, um, we are at our heart. America First Community Organizers, and that involves a wide array of activities that for a long time have not been engaged in by the patriotic right in this country. That extends to voter registration, to educating local officials, to educating state officials, and having events like we did uh, to raise the profile of the injustices suffered by the political prisoners arrested in the aftermath of the January 6th protests at the Capitol. Uh, none of this happens without your help. So I encourage you to please either uh, volunteer on our website, lookheadamerica.org, or to make a contribution so we continue this good work, this good and necessary work. Uh, so with that, um, I appreciate you joining us. Please like and subscribe and share this podcast. America first, America forever. <laughs>